So what is the title today is Thanksgiving. What is Christian Thanksgiving? What is Christian Thanksgiving? Uh, You know, I hope you know that this world is not uh, a bunch of people thrown together who believe different things and they're all just kind of taking the same path to God or their concept of God. This world and everything in it, every aspect of the universe was created by the triune God of the Christian scriptures. Everything exists for him, because of him, and uh, depends on him. Every molecule, every individual exists to glorify him. And so when people uh, during this time of year will give thanks, maybe you're watching a parade on the television being thankful, or they express some sort of religious thanks, it's usually to some concept of what they think God is, or to some being, or maybe just being thankful. If they don't believe in God, that is idolatrous thanksgiving. The only true thanksgiving that God hears is Christian thanksgiving. So what is Christian thanksgiving? A little definition I've used over the years. Christian thanksgiving is gratefully acknowledging God's goodness through Jesus Christ. We are gratefully acknowledging God's goodness through Jesus Christ. We are told in scripture to always be thankful. We are told in some passages, even in times of difficulty and trial, to be thankful. And you might think, what's there to be thankful for? Because everything I'm going through is miserable. In that time, is the triune God still good? Is he still ruling over all? Yes. That's why we must give, we must gratefully acknowledge God's goodness. Too often our thankfulness is us-centered, isn't it? I'm experiencing this, so now I can be thankful. We must always be thankful. We come to the Old Testament How should Christians view the Old Testament? How should we respond to the Old Testament? There can be the attitude of, it's the Old Testament. It's old, meaning it's passe. It's out of date. It's not, I have no application to us today. We want new. Uh, We want the, the truth, and that's just old. The New Testament was built on the old. You don't go backwards. Well, what does the Bible say about that? Well, you know the Hebrew word I have used to help us understand that kind of attitude. It's hogwash, and that's not really a Hebrew word. But a couple passages of Scripture as we come to Nehemiah chapter 12. First is 2 Timothy 3, verses 15 and 17. I'd encourage you to maybe write these down, because you might have someone say, should we even pay attention to the Old Testament? In 2 Timothy 3, 15 to 17, Paul tells Timothy, continue in the things that you've learned and heard, Continue in the scriptures because it's from them that you learn about Christ. And then he says, all scripture is inspired by God. Not just the New Testament, but all scripture. And all scripture is profitable. And all scripture is profitable for learning, for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. So th- another passage, Romans 15.4. Romans 15.4. There Paul tells Christians in Rome, Jews and Gentiles, Whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we through patience 
and comfort of the scriptures will have hope. Do you want hope, Christian? Do you want a confident expectation? You need to read the Old Testament, study it, and know it well. A third passage, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11. Paul says there, all these things happened to them as examples. They were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Christian, as we come to our national time of Thanksgiving, let's learn from Nehemiah and these Jews here in Nehemiah chapter 12, how they thanked the Lord, how they responded to God's provisions and who God was. The passage is summarized in this way at the top of your sheet there. You respond to God's help and provision with joyful thanksgiving, singing, and worship. But Nehemiah isn't a book that you're probably ultra familiar with. So why did they go through all this thanksgiving? With all these guys with really long names that are hard for us to pronounce, it wasn't hard for them. They'd probably look at your name and they'd say, what in the world? How do you pronounce that? Unless it's an Old Testament name like Daniel or Josiah or Jonathan, and you get the idea. I'll give you most of it here. Let's look first at God's help and provision in chapters 1 through 11. Nehemiah came uh, to Jerusalem 14 years after the previous guy, Ezra. Ezra's the book before this. 14 years before Nehemiah was there, Ezra arrived in Jerusalem. And when Ezra arrived, the people had built the temple, but he arrived and he helped Judah align their lives with God's truth, his character, and God's commands. And Ezra did that by carefully teaching the word, by praying, and by admonishing them to obey. He dealt with those who had turned away from the true God. He dealt with their morality in the church, or in the, in the, in the, in the, the country, the nation there. In fact, we'll see a little contrast here with, with Nehemiah. Uh, Ezra, when he heard of the immorality of Israelites marrying non-Israelites, Ezra pulled his hair in grief. And Nehemiah, when a similar thing happens 12, 15 years later, Nehemiah doesn't pull his own hair. Guess what Nehemiah does? He pulls their hair. So a little different personality and leadership style. So let's go to chapter 1, Nehemiah chapter 1. First, we see how Nehemiah, and I abbreviate it to fit everything on the sheet there. Nehemiah was in, Chis, uh, I'm sorry, in Shushan, the citadel. Uh, he was the king's cupbearer, a very important position. But he was 900 miles away when he got bad news. Chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. He heard, verse 2, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah. I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. Now to us, this might not seem that, what's the big deal? So they didn't have walls and gates. Well, those are necessary for the protection of the city and the temple that they had just built. Essential. Absolutely essential. Nehemiah heard this, and so what did he do? Verse 8, 
he prayed. He prayed to the Lord. Look at his prayer. Remember I pray, verse 8, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are faith unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you are cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there, bring them to the dwelling place that I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. And Nehemiah says this then to the Lord in verse 10. Now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Oh Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. Let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. I was the king's cupbearer. This man is referring to the king. 900 miles away. That's a long distance for us, isn't it? It would take a lot of driving. A pretty decent plane ride. What about in Nehemiah's time? This would be, for Nehemiah's time, about a four-month journey. He's a long ways from home. Number two. Nehemiah then is before King Artaxerxes. And he has an interview after that. That's what subsequent means. Normally I don't do that, so I apologize for that. Nehemiah, he was of sorrowful heart in front of King Artaxerxes, and this might not seem that big a deal. But when you're the guy responsible for the king's health as the king's cupbearer, he would make sure the king wasn't getting poisoned food. How'd you like that job? If you eat poisoned food, end of employment. He was an extremely trustworthy position. And so when he's of a sad face, sad countenance, this caused our Xerxes, what's going on? And so what did Nehemiah do? He shot up a prayer to the Lord. Lord, he says in verse 5, I prayed to the God of heaven. And then he made a substantial request to the king. Lord, I want to go back. And I I not only want to go back and help rebuild the walls and 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 the doors. I want you to pay for it. And I want you, king, to give me safe passage along that time, that way. That's quite a request, isn't it? To ask a pagan emperor to let me leave, pay for the thing. And give me safe passage. And the Lord did that. Look at verse 8. He asked for, I'm sorry, the very last part of verse 8. It says, the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Now, as I work through these dozen or so things, I'm setting the foundation. Why did they give thanks? Why did they rejoice? Why did they praise the Lord in the way that they did? Starts all the way back when Nehemiah was there. He hears, he prays, and he sees God answer. Number three, Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem in chapter two. He sees the ruins. He challenged the people to work. But right away, there is opposition. Look at chapter two, verse 19. When Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, And Geshem the Arab heard of it. They laughed at us and despised us and said, 
what is this thing that you're doing? Will you rebel against the king? How did Nehemiah respond? Verse 20, I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. Nehemiah didn't flash the the letter that he had from Artaxerxes. He went to the ruler of heaven and earth. The God of heaven will prosper us. That was his answer. Number four. In chapter three, we have detail of the substantial repairs that were made. I'm not going to read this, but you can find out all the names and all the gates and all the things that they did here. It's all detailed. Number five, in chapter four, there's opposition by those two guys again, Sanballat and Tobiah. Look at verse three. They looked at the wall that was being built. They had mocked them, verse one. And they said this, verse three, Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and said, whatever they build it, Whatever they build, if even a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Now, I want you to remember that. If a fox goes up on top of the wall, what's going to happen to this wall that they're building? It's all going to fall apart. Remember that. Nehemiah prayed, verse 4. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their reproach on their own heads. Give them as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity. Do not let their sin be blotted out from before you. They provoke you to anger before the builders. Oh, we read that and we're like, they need to listen to Jesus' sermon on the mount to turn the other cheek. They, need, they weren't being very biblical, we read that. They were being extremely biblical. God promised Abraham and his descendants in Genesis 2, or Genesis 12, those who curse you, what did he promise? I will curse them. He is responding biblically here. The people, verse 6, had a mind to work. This is no little project. This is a great big thing that they're doing. There's more conspiracy, verse 8. All of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. And then look at verse 9. Nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God. And because of them, we set a watch against them day and night. They prayed to God. Number six, verse 10. Then Judah said, the strength of the laborers is failing, and there's so much rubbish that we are not able to build a wall. If you uh, helped us at all, had any participation in our building program, were there times we were like, we're tired. We just want a break. Painting and shoveling. And whatever we do, it was a lot of work. Can you imagine building a wall around a city? Can you imagine building doors? They couldn't just run to Home Depot, call a contractor. They had to do it all themselves. They're tired. And so number six, they're hard at work and they're tired and too much to do. And they were fearful of attack. Look at chapter four, verse 14. I looked and rose and said to the nobles, to the leaders and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome. And fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. And then drop down to verse 20. 
Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. Remember, I'm laying the groundwork. Why did they give such thanksgiving to God in chapter 12? Who are they trusting for all this? They're trusting the Lord. Are they just sitting around waiting for God to do the work? No, they're working hard. I didn't read it, but in one hand they had a trowel. What did they have in the other hand? Sword. They're doing uh, what they, they can do and what they should do. They're, they're bearing that responsibility. Sadly, number seven, there was financial hardship caused by Jews on Jews. Uh, verses one to 13. They were uh, loaning money at great uh, significant interest rates. If you know your Mosaic law, that was a no-no. Jews are not supposed to do that. Uh, you can loan money, but no significant interest rates like that. And so to, to pay that, some were uh, enslaving some of their children to pay their debts. And this, uh, Nehemiah was ticked, verse 6. They became very angry at the outcry at this. And so uh, he, he said, no, this isn't right. You shouldn't be doing this. Verse 9, I said, what, are you do- what you're doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? We've been praying that God will help us. Should you not walk in the fear of God in spite of our enemies? Verse 13, I shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out each man from his house, from his property who does not perform this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. This is basically, a, a, at, at the very least, a, a promise that you're not going to live here anymore uh, at the most possible execution because they've been disobeying God's law. Number eight, Nehemiah resisted the temptation to use his position for wealth. And instead, he used his wealth for the opposite because of the fear of God in chapter five, verse 15. Every governor before that, they used their position to have all kinds of fancy things. And, and no, Nehemiah didn't do that. He used his own money to pay for his own needs. And he was generous with that because of the fear of the Lord. Number nine. Boy, these bad guys again. Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem's effort to distract, to slander, and to intimidate Nehemiah in chapter six. Let me summarize what happened here. First thing is uh, one of them said, hey, we need to get together and we need to have a meeting. Now, these are guys who made fun of them, who threatened them. Do you think Nehemiah is going to say, oh, Here's my enemies. They've been so mean, and now they're finally being nice. Maybe they've changed. No, Nehemiah said, no, I am busy working. Don't distract me. Then they said later on in uh, verse 6 and following, uh, people are saying this about you. Rumor is that, you know what? If you don't stop, we're going to tell on you. Nehemiah says, no, everything you're telling me is fake news. It's wrong. It's not true. I am not going to be hindered from doing God's work. And then the last thing that happened in chapter 6 is there was a, a promise of a threat. And so Sanballat and Tobiah, they paid some Jews so that those Jews would say to Nehemiah, there's a threat on your life. You need to come and hide yourself. Protect yourself from that. Nehemiah said, you only want me to be afraid. You want me to think of myself. I'm not going to do that. 
Look at two things from chapter 6. First, verse 9. They were all trying to make us afraid, saying their hands will be weakened in the work and it will not be done. Look at Nehemiah's expression. Now, therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. And then verse 14. My God, remember Tobiah and Sanballat according to these their works and the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who had made me afraid. Number 10, chapter 6. The wall was completed to the dismay of the enemies. Verse 15, the wall was finished on the 25th day of Elil in 52 days. Wow. How long did it take us to renovate the building? Your life wasn't dependent on it for one thing. Another thing, you didn't have Artaxerxes paying for the whole project, but it was a lot of work. Verse 16, and when it happened, when all our enemies heard it and all the nations around us saw these things, that they were very disheartened in their own eyes for they perceived that this work was done by our God. Why did they take time to give thanks to the Lord? Even the enemies saw this. A couple passages you could write down. Psalm 126, verse 2, that may have been written right around or shortly after this time. We're not really sure. Psalm 126, 2, our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. That was Psalm 126. And then the next passage would be Psalm 127, verse 1. I think most of us know this. But in light of this, it helps us have a better appreciation for one, Psalm 1 and 27.1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. The Lord built the house. The Lord helped. Number 11, chapter 7. Jerusalem was sparsely set, settled, but God gave Nehemiah wisdom, and so he gave praise for that. Uh, chapter 7, uh, work towards... Chapter 8, the second part of the last verse of chapter 7. So verse 73, the second part, it says, When the seventh month came, the children of Israel were in their cities. Now, this is their civil New Year's Day. And we might say, what's going on? Why are you having your civil New Year's Day on which month? Not the first month, but the, the seventh month. It was their civil New Year's Day. Their religious New Year's Day was, guess which month? The first month. So that's why the distinction here. On their civil, number 12, on their civil New Year's Day, they read the word of God and God worked in their hearts. Drop down with me to chapter 8, verse 6. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And they got a bunch of guys, verse 7. Verse 8, they read distinctly from the book and the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the meeting. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For the people wept when they heard the words of the Lord. Then he said to them, Go to your way. 
eat the fat, drink the sweet, send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared, for this day is holy to the Lord. Look at this. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is their strength. So the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and rejoice greatly because they understood the words that were declared to them. They rejoiced that they understood God's word. They heard it. And then in chapter 8, verses 13 and 18, they read about, hey, we're supposed to create tabernacles and we're supposed to remember how God uh, protected Israel as they walked through the, the wilderness and they had such a tremendous time Observing that. Number 13, 24 days later, those who married non-Israelites confessed their sin and they made a covenant. Uh, You need to read this sometime, but uh, here we have, and this is after Ezra. Remember, Ezra had to deal with all this. Ezra had to go through that. Same thing again. And so uh, this is a, a reviewing of how the Lord had helped them. Several times in this prayer, in this praise, in verses 5, chapter 9, verse 5, to the end of the chapter, several times, three or four times, the focus is on God's mercy. But Lord, your your people sinned, but you were merciful. Your people sinned, and you were merciful. And so then in chapter 10, verses 28 to 31, they made a promise that they'll... uh, separate themselves from, the, the, from the, the pagans, the walk in God's law, and they will obey him. And last, number 14. There were leaders who lived in Jerusalem, but there were many who volunteered. They, they initially started this plan to have people who lived outside uh, by kind of a, a, a roll of the dice, a lottery, if you will, uh, to live in there. But many said, voluntarily, I'll go live there. I'll live in the city. Now, for those of us, most of us who live in the country, they're really putting their all on the altar, aren't they? Would you volunteer to go live in Cleveland, downtown? Uh, That's what these folks were doing because they love the Lord. What changes, amazing changes that we read here, and this is all in the span of just a few months. Nehemiah, 900 miles away, hears of Jerusalem's desperate condition. He travels, he rallies the troops to build. They fight against their enemies. They deal with sin in the people. They rebuilt the the walls and the doors in 52 days. How many times do we read in Nehemiah? We prayed to the Lord, our God. Oh God, see and here, strengthen our hands. Deal with this enemy. Give us wisdom. And God answered. And so when we come to chapter 12 then. Chapter 12, built on everything that we've seen, all their prayers and all their trust. They essentially say, we have got to dedicate this to the Lord and thank him because, boy, has he worked. Has he helped? Has he provided? 
We don't know the exact time of this dedication, but it seems most likely it's right after the solemn ceremonies of chapters 8 through 10. And in this, on the inside of your sheet there, as we look at nine items, I'm calling these nine ingredients of biblical praise and thanksgiving. And ingredients, I think, is an appropriate word because many of you are going to be doing some cooking, baking, and things that I have no knowledge of. Steps and ingredients that need to be there. We need to learn from this so that we give biblical praise and thanksgiving. First, number one, their aim was to devote this wall and doors to the Lord. Verse 27. The dedication of the wall. To devote it. Celebrate the dedication with gladness. We must see here, they didn't devote and dedicate all this for themselves. They didn't name the city after themselves. They didn't name the gates after themselves. It didn't, wasn't viewed as Providing for money and funds and human existence, they viewed it. This exists for God's glory so that his people are provided for. And we know that God, uh, we know that God has cared for us. Number two, verse 30. Look at me at verse 30. The priests and the Levites purified themselves and purified the people, the gates and the wall. Their preparation was holiness to the Lord. Their preparation was holiness to the Lord. What's all this purification? Well, read Leviticus and you'll learn a little bit more about this. This is part of their essential, how they worshiped as, as Israelites and Jews there. This enabled them to serve the Lord as priests and Levites, according to God's law. Separating the common and the unclean from what should be for God's intended purposes. Usually it involved the sprinkling of blood and that sounds really gross to us, but that was essential to them. And it would remind them continually, without the shedding of blood, there's what? No remission of sin. Teaches God's holiness and moral purity. Christian, you are a believer priest to the Lord. It's a New Testament teaching and doctrine called the priesthood of the believer you are able to go directly into God's very presence. We have a high priest, don't we? First Timothy 2, verse 5. Jesus Christ, the God-man, our great high priest. But you have this ability to go directly into God's presence, enter into his presence. You must be holy. And remember, wherever you go, you go, as God's believer priest, you must always be holy as he is holy. Number three, verses 31 to 39. They had intentional, specific, public recognition of God's provisions. Recognition. It was intentional. They planned it. It was specific. They knew exactly what they wanted to do. It was public. It wasn't hidden or private. Look at verse 31. 
So I brought the leaders of Judah up on the wall and appointed two large thanksgiving choirs. One went to the right hand on the wall toward the refuse gate, and then verse 38, the other went the opposite way. Now here's where I want you to remember, what did some of their enemies say about a certain animal getting on top of the walls? If a fox goes up on that wall, what's going to happen to those walls? They're going to crash down. What did they do? On the opposite side, I'll give you a little map there, or a a picture. You can see the X, kind of about the uh, 8 o'clock position where it says Valigate in the furnace tower. So you had one group go left, the dots, and the other group go right, the dashes. And they didn't go alongside. They didn't go on the inside or the outside of the wall. Where did they march? On the wall. What a message that would give to their enemies. This is what God has done. The first group was led by Ezra the scribe, verses 31 to 37. The other group went the other way. It was not led by Nehemiah. I don't know if you remember, Nehemiah was in the back. Don't want to read too much of that. Imagine the memories that these folks would have had as they're marching on the wall. Hey, we were just down there. I helped with that rock. I held that beam. I cut that wood. They thought not only about the work, they thought about the attacks by Sanballat, Tobiah, and the other guys. They would have thought, this is God's city. This is Zion. This is Jerusalem. They would have thought about what it was like just a few months before, and now they look at it now. God did this, and they rejoiced, and they gave thanks. I'd encourage you to do that with our building. This is something God did. Even more fundamentally, I would encourage you to do that with our church. You know there's a difference between the two, don't you? I hope you pray for one another here. And as you're praying for each one in our church body, think about how the Lord has been changing them and helping them grow Think about their struggles they're going through now. When you see each other right now, don't just come to a conclusion, oh, that's Joyce, that's John or whoever. This is your brother. This is your sister. This is someone my Savior died for. This is my brother and sister in Christ. And they marched around until they arrived at the temple. In verse 40. Number four, there is joy. Another ingredient, a fourth ingredient was joy. Verse 27 and verse 43, there's rejoicing, glad rejoicing. You could write down Psalm 48, verses 12 to 14, where that is reflected there as well. They had choirs. You read here in, uh, in the verses 31 and following, they had seven 
priests blowing trumpets. And don't think of our trumpets with the valves and all that. Okay, it's probably a curved horn, something like that. The priests, other priests are are playing musical instruments. Verse 36, from David, the man of God. What were they joyful about? The Lord heard prayer. The Lord answered. The Lord rebuked his enemies. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Number five, a fifth ingredient, thanksgiving. Four times it's mentioned. Thanksgiving, gratefully acknowledging God's goodness. That was what they sang about. That was the content of their thanksgiving. It wasn't about them. Lord, isn't Nehemiah great? Lord, isn't Ezra great? No, it was about God, the one true God. What do you have to be thankful for? We took time for that earlier, don't we? didn't we? Give thanks to God in song and thanksgiving. Number six, a, a sixth ingredient, it was orderly. It was orderly. Verses 1 to 26, they knew exactly who the priests and the Levites were. It couldn't be just anyone. They needed to be able to trace their lineage. And in verse 30, they had to be purified there. It was according to Scripture. Now what they wanted to think. Yeah, you can be a priest. You read about that in the book of Judges when every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And it was an abomination. These priests prepared themselves. They followed the Lord in joyful songs of thanksgiving. God tells us how he is to be worshipped. We are not to direct our worship according to an idolatrous, sinful culture. Well, hey, we see that all in the world. We should do that too. No. The triune God tells us how we should worship him. Not by our individual whims. Not by our ideas. But rather, of 1 Corinthians 14, 24 and 25 and verse 40. We have an orderliness, scripture, Christ-oriented. Number seven, it was sacrificial, verse 43. Sacrificial thanksgiving. Also that day, they offered great sacrifices. We have some dead birds over that way. Turkey. Maybe there's some ham. That's definitely not Jewish, is it? Maybe there's some other kind of meat. Are those our New Testament sacrifices? No. Does the New Testament talk about believers, Christians, having sacrifices? Sure does. Give you three passages. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Verses 12, chapter 12, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Offer your body a living sacrifice. And yes, your physical body, it's a representation for your whole life. Your whole life is to be given to God in worship. A second passage, Philippians 4.18. Philippians 4.18. Financial gifts. If you give money to the Lord here in our offering box at the back, that is a sacrifice that is pleasing to the Lord. And by the way, remember chapter 4, verse 19? A verse that we've used and looked to a lot over the last three or so years. My God shall supply all your need according to the riches that are found in Christ Jesus. 
It's preceded by sacrifice, verse 18. And a third passage, Hebrews 13, 17. Hebrews 13, 17 talks about the sacrifice of the praise of your lips. When we sing, that is a sacrifice that is a gift to God. Number eight, our worship must be biblical. Verse 40, it must be biblical. We see here that the two Thanksgiving choirs stood in the house of God. So they started kind of here, they worked their way around, and they ended at the same spot. The house of God, the temple. That's where, in their day and age, they were to gather as God's people and worship. That's where God's name was remembered. That's where God's glory came when Solomon was there. That's where God's glory left after they were taken captive. They were singing and the sacrifices there. Where is our temple? Well, the Bible speaks of the body of the church, of the body of believers as temples of the Spirit. But it also speaks in 1 Corinthians 3 as the church is Christ's temple. And you know, that's not four walls and a ceiling, is it? It is a body. The church is God's, in this day and age, God's ordained place of worship, of edification, of growing in the Lord. Number nine, the last ingredient, verse 43. We read here that the women and the children also rejoiced. And I put this in quotes. Uh, your blank here for number nine is congregational. Congregational. It wasn't just the leaders, and it wasn't just the men. Just the women and the children, they participated in this too. They rejoiced and they gave thanks. They watched what happened over the past few months. They supported. They helped. They endured the absence of their husbands for weeks and weeks while their husbands and fathers both built and defended these women and children, they heard the threats. They saw God's help and deliverance. They shared in that. And so they rightly joined in, rejoicing and giving thanks. And thus, they also rejoiced. We didn't get to chapter 13. Chapter 13 is a sad account. Some years after this, the people fell into sin. There was an alliance with Tobiah, the Ammonite. They stopped providing for the Levites. They were working and doing business on the Sabbath, which was a definite no-no for them as Israelites. They intermarried with non-Israelites. All clear and direct disobedience to God's commands. This is a solemn warning to us, church body. In times of great work and worship, and we've experienced some tremendous blessings, haven't we? We cannot let our guard down. We can't stop seeking the Lord. We must continue to press forward in doing God's work. We must continually pray and ask for God's help. The enemy might not be someone attacking us, but do we have an enemy inside us and our own sin nature? Does Satan not? prowl about like a roaring lion. I wonder how many of these in chapter 13 who had broken God's law, I wonder how many of them 
had marched on the walls. Maybe because of the course of time, it wasn't them. Maybe it was their kids. And those kids, they maybe had been young or uh, maybe older teenagers. And then after 10, 12, 13 years, they saw what had happened. They heard the promises that their parents made and the commitments that were given and the praise and the thanks. I don't see the relevance of this for us now, they might have said. We've got a wall. We've got all we need. I know mom and dad say this. But it just doesn't seem the right thing to do in this day and age now. A sobering lesson, isn't it? What will Oro Bible Church be like in 12 years? Think. What has God done for you, Christian? If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you know. You once were blind, but now you see. Your heart was stone, but now it's flesh. Your ears were deaf, but now you hear. What cause do you have for rejoicing and giving thanks to the Lord? What great response we should give to how he has helped, how he has provided. We must give thanks. We must sing. We must worship. And let's beware of settling down. Let's always press on so that we are always thanking him and always singing to him and always rejoicing in him.